Today's podcast is sponsored by David M. Hosmer Law Office, which is celebrating David's 30th year practicing law. You may not need a lawyer, but when you do, you need an excellent one. Contact him at davidhosmer at hotmail.com. Today's podcast is also brought to you by Ben's Brewing Company in Yankton. Ben's has been a place for great conversation since 2005. Look for Ben's beer in stores throughout eastern South Dakota. Welcome to Yankton's Yardbirds podcast presenting the World War II stories of Yankton's veterans. After 165 interviews and countless hours of preparation, it's time to share these stories. As of now, they'll be shared by podcast and later will be presented in print. If you have questions, free to contact me at davidhosmer at hotmail.com. Please be advised that there is some offensive language within these interviews. When I'm speaking, I've added my language to more modern times. This December, we'll remember the sneak attack at Pearl Harbor. The next two podcasts will introduce you to American military activity before Pearl Harbor and then nationalizing the state's National Guard units. Episode three will present the stories of three men who were at Pearl Harbor while episode four will summarize the events of December 7th. So let's get started. America was unprepared to fight a world war. The entire United States regular military in 1940 numbered just under half a million people. And the branch with the fewest members was the Marine Corps, with just over 25,000. My fascination with the Marines began with a stray comment from Marine Wayne Barham. Barham said that the China Marines were revered because they were tough. Evidently, Sergeant Daly, Wayne's drill instructor at Marine Boot Camp, had served in China prior to the war. One day he stuck his face within inches of mine and asked, What is the serial number on your rifle? I don't know, sir. You don't know? I will ask you this tomorrow, and if you don't know the answer, I will personally take you out in the boondocks, and I'll hurt you really bad. Maybe kill you. I felt really strongly that Sergeant Daly was a man of his word. When asked how that story ended, this was Barham's reply some 70 years later. The serial number engraved in my rifle was 801272. I guess some memories just don't fade. Another nickname for these hard scrabble Marines was the Old Breed, which is what Marine Carl Bud DeVere called pre-war Marines. He said China Marines thought they were special. They were a bunch of wise asses. They dressed differently. They wore high top shoes. They had thick soles on their heels to be taller. They had a short canvas jacket, which was known as a Vandegrift jacket. As you might imagine, I wanted to meet a China Marine. I searched for one year, and finally, Warren Jorgensen, who lived in Bennington, Nebraska, a small town northwest of Omaha, came to my attention. He was kind enough to meet me in May of 2017 at his apartment. He established one certain fact. The tensions between America and Japan did not start at Pearl Harbor. They had been simmering and boiling for many years. Warren grew up in Bertram, Iowa. It had a population of 90 in 1940. After seeing a newspaper ad for the Marine Corps, he enlisted in Cedar Rapids. According to him, it was exciting to think of faraway places. That sounded romantic, he said. 
That must have been one convincing advertisement. He departed for basic training in San Diego, California in December of 1939. Warren's departure to China with 1,200 other Marines in the 4th Regiment, 1st Marine Division, was memorable. Warren already knew a little bit about China, which was unique for a country boy in 1940. Our minister in Bertram had been a missionary to China. He asked me to visit a Methodist school there. American Marines were billeted in Tianjin, Peking, and Shanghai. Warren was headed to Shanghai. What a sight, he said. Shanghai was the Marines' favorite duty post. The world was your oyster, he said. The junior enlisted men lived in villas and employed houseboys, but a lot of older men lived elsewhere. As he noted, they shacked up with their lady friends. This was a perk because those Marines could wear civilian clothing and only returned when necessary. Warren was paid 21 bucks per month, which was up to 36 in 1941. He smiled as he said that during his first liberty, he paid less than a dollar for a rickshaw driver and a good meal. Warren talked about the other things he saw and did. One of the most frequented bars by the Marines was the Little Club because the house played American music. It was also the location of an infamous brawl with Italian soldiers. Italy had joined the war in June of 1940 on the side of the Nazis. Italian sailors arrived in Shanghai aboard the Eritrea, which had escaped the British blockade. It was a likely intent to start a fight by one particular Marine, and one of the burly Marines had a headlock on an Italian sailor, dragged him along the piano, and pushed him out the second-story window. He died. Next morning, the Marine brass required all the men to stand in formation. Ambassadors of America and Italy passed along the ranks looking for guys who may have partaken in the fight. We all knew who did it, said Warren, but uh, it didn't become common knowledge. The first duty of these China Marines was to defend America's sector in Shanghai's international zone. Great Britain, the Netherlands, France, Japan, and Italy also had a presence in Shanghai. Japan had more troops in Shanghai than any other foreign country. Each country needed to protect its commerce, which is why American China Marines had been sent to Shanghai in 1927. The Marines had two rifle companies and only one machine gun company in Shanghai. A series of events occurred in China before Warren arrived. Japan had colonized other countries. After militarily defeating both the Chinese in 1895 and Russia in 1905, it took control of the Korean Peninsula. After the Great War, the Germans involuntarily ceded their territories located north of the equator in the Pacific, including the Marshalls, the Palaus, Carolines, and Marianas, to Japan. The Japanese also inherited Germany's ports and Shanghai's international settlement. As the Japanese empire expanded, it became more difficult to defend those areas due to the cost to acquire natural resources, such as oil, most of which were not located in Japan. The Great Depression was worldwide, and it impacted Japan as well. Financial troubles provided an opportunity for nationalistic leaders who favored more colonization to argue that aggression would boost their ailing economy. Looking north from Korea, the Japanese eyed the natural resources owned by Manchuria, which is in northern China today. The Japanese seized upon the opportunity to invade after an alleged terrorist attack at Mukden, China, and invaded Manchuria in 1931. The League of Nations declared the invasion to be hostile, thereby prompting Japan to withdraw from the League in 1933. On the 12th of December, 1937, the Japanese sank an American ship, the USS Panay, killing two Americans. At about that same time, America learned that the Japanese during their invasion of China massacred thousands of people. 
In response to America's growing negative views of Japan, the American government sold arms to China. Japan was unhappy with this. The war in Europe spilled over into the international settlement too. Within a couple of months after France surrendered, British troops left Shanghai. A month later, Vichy French agreed to cooperate with Japan. Only American and Japanese troops remained in Shanghai's international settlement. This led to the Marines' second duty in Shanghai. The Chinese government, after 1937, operated its government from when the French and international zones to the great frustration of the Japanese. By 1940, most European troops had already departed, which meant America was mainly on its own. As a result, the Marines acted like local police force separating the Japanese from the Chinese. Chinese merchants in the streets were selling pictures of the Japanese massacres by the dozens. There was a lot of hate there, said Warren Jorgensen. The American Navy also helped to police the international zone. Known as the Yangtze Patrol, they had a seaplane tender, a small boat with one plane. According to Warren, I only saw those guys in the clubs. One of America's most immediate needs was a larger military. About three million men had been conscripted during the Great War, but war had already been declared. That presented a political problem because America was not yet at war in September of 40, when President Roosevelt signed the Selective Service Act. Just under one million men were drafted that year. In July of 1941, Japan called up another million men for its military duty as well. America's first peacetime draft process was both broad and random. As a prerequisite to being drafted, men had to register their names with the United States government. Those men under 17 or over the age of 65 years of age were exempted from registration. Nearly 50 million men registered. As a second limitation, only men between the ages of 21 and 36 could be drafted. Men between 18 and 20 years of age were not added until November of 1942. Numbers 1 through 7,836 were placed on paper slips. A blindfolded Secretary of War, Henry Stimson, put his hand into the fishbowl and drew out the first numbers. Each man was tied to one of those numbers. The first number, 158, required 6,175 lucky men to report to their local board for a physical examination. To assist with this process, draft boards created to fulfill their quotas were established all over the United States. Even if a man was drafted, he still might not serve. Draftees had to be physically fit, which were those men between five foot and six foot six inches tall, weighing at least 105 pounds, who could read and write, among other things. These men were classified as 1A. Ed Johnson, who was drafted in 1940, only half-jokingly explained that 1A meant good for cannon fodder. Deferments were common. Orvin Oyen, who registered in 1941 and was drafted in the fall of that year, was classified 2C, an agricultural deferment. His father needed help picking corn that fall, so he requested and received a three-month delay to report for induction. He reported to the Army in March of 1942. In the fall of 1941, Art Giggy and his brother Herman drove Art's Model T to Everett, Washington to find work. Art's first job was picking apples, but he eventually worked at the Oregon-Washington Plywood Company. Plywood was used in PT boats, airplanes, military buildings, shipping crates, and many other things. December of 1941, Art received notice from the Yankton Draft Board to return to South Dakota. Before he could return, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. He knew what came next. We knew that we would have to join sometime. While on his way back to South Dakota, his mother died on the 9th of December. He asked his draft board for a six-month delay, a 2B war production deferment, so he could return to Everett, quit his job, and then return to Yankton. 
The deferment was granted, and he was inducted into the Army at Fort Crook, Nebraska, on the 6th of May, 1942. Draftees in 1940 were required to serve one year, which was extended to 18 months in 1941. After the war began, the terms were extended, quote, for the duration of the war, unquote. One of the odd things that occurred in response to the draft was more enlistments in the regular military. Kip Larson was in the peacetime draft in 1941. He turned around and enlisted in the Army. When asked why, he said he wanted more money. Each enlistee's pay increased by $9 per month. Ed Johnson, who was drafted in 41, had a similar story. His draft order required him to travel to Omaha for a physical exam. A bus picked up 60 to 70 men at the Yankton Armory, which was located across from the Elks on Walnut Street in Yankton. Jack Welby, Wes Jarman, Don Snow, and Roy Anderson were with him. After his exam, but before he received notice of where to report, Ed wondered about his enlistment. At that time, the draft was going wild, he said. Ed's brother-in-law, Ken Erickson, told him, The Navy has six-year enlistments. The Coast Guard has three years. The Coast Guard is under the Navy in wartime. Unless you want to spend six years in the Navy, you should join the Coast Guard. And that's exactly what he did. Another significant event occurred in July of 1941 after the Japanese invaded Indochina, which is now Vietnam. Roosevelt acted. He seized all Japanese assets in the United States, recalled General Douglas MacArthur to active duty, giving him control of the Army of the Far East, and imposed a heavy trade embargo on the Japanese government, thereby cutting off 90% of Japan's oil. As an economic crisis brewed in Japan, the government looked elsewhere for its oil. According to Warren Jorgensen, I didn't know the significance of the Japanese invasion of Indochina, but we sure had tension in the summer of 1941. I got transferred to the headquarters company and I became a guard truck driver. He drove both in and out of the American international zone. In fact, they frequently assisted in the arrests of Japanese who were not in the proper zone. Some Jap general, Warren said, whom they were there to protect, wanted to take a shortcut across the international zone. We invited them out of the city and then gave them their weapons back. It was suggested that this may have been done to test the Marines. Both protocol and security increased at Marine headquarters. There were lots of formations at headquarters, he said, and the men living off the base were ordered back into the billets, which meant they couldn't wear their civvies. The number of arriving presidential ships diminished. They really cracked down. At one point, we made plans to put armor on the side of our trucks and to travel inland to Chongqing. Then, in mid-November of 1941, President Roosevelt ordered the Marines out of China. In our next podcast, we'll introduce you to the 147th Field Artillery. E-Battery contained about 105 men, about 50 of whom came from Yankton and Tabor. The men who'll be telling us their stories are Don Madrager, Arnold Albrecht, and Clifford Hicks. If you are interested in sponsoring an episode of Yankton's Yardbirds, please contact David Hosmer at davidhosmer at hotmail.com. All content for this podcast was created by David Hosmer, and all production was performed by Eric Berenger. Thank you for listening to this episode of Yankton's Yardbirds.